Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14. Most of you know that I teach church history for for a seminary for a men, and um, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated because I see myself in church history, and it's also full of riveting stories. One of those stories is about a man named Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was not a model Christian, but was used by God, maybe more in his failure than in his, than in his success. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England. He helped Mar- uh, Henry VIII divorce Catherine of Aragorn, leading to England, splitting from the, the Roman Church. He was used to bring about the Reformation in England, but he denied the faith at one point close to the end of his life. When Bloody Mary took the throne after her sister Elizabeth, she, being a Catholic, immediately began to to try to stop the English Reformation, and she began persecuting Protestants. and And Thomas Cranmer was imprisoned. He went from the highest ecclesiastical office in England to to a jail cell, and he was imprisoned and watched his his friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, be burned at the stake. And in the month that followed, he feared the same fate. He knew that's what was going to happen. He actually watched them in the fire, and and he capitulated. He he got scared. He, He recanted his faith and submitted himself to the papacy. And as part of his recantation, being a, being a preacher, he had to publicly do that from the pulpit. And so there was a time set aside for him at the University Church at Oxford for him to recant of the doctrines of the Reformation. And when that moment came, much to the surprise of Mary, once in the pulpit, Cranmer publicly denounced himself and what he had done. Knowing that he would be immediately executed, he preached true believers should reject all papal authority and trust in the biblical gospel. And he ended his sermon by declaring that he would punish the hand that actually signed the recantation by burning it first in the fire. And Cranmer was pulled from the pulpit and tied to the same stake where he watched his friends died just about five months earlier, and true to his word, as the flames began to leap up around his waist, he took the hand that signed that recantation and thrust it into the fire, crying out as he died, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I've never read that Thomas Cranmer went to Mark 14 after he faltered But I'm sure this passage that we have in front of us came to his mind. The passage we have before us is called The Denial of Peter, and it contains what every Christian needs to understand about their own frame. It's an event that's already been mentioned in Mark's Gospel many times. It's even predicted by the Lord. We we walk through that passage. And, And the story actually starts hours earlier in the upper room, but Peter's need, the, 
the, the evidence of his need goes all the way back to Caesarea Philippi whenever he rebukes the Lord and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You recall at the Passover meal, Jesus was preparing his disciples for this crushing temptation that was going to come upon them when he was, when he was arrested. And he tells them that they would be fearful of any association with him and that they're all going to flee. And even that was a prophecy. Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the, and the sheep will scatter. But Peter, in his great boldness, declares this prophecy and that lesson doesn't apply to him. You ever done that? He rebukes the Lord, corrects God's prophecy, and for the second time, no less, in, in his short stint as a disciple, the first time at Caesarea Philippi. Not only does Peter say, Lord, you're wrong, I'm stronger than that, but he professes to be stronger than Satan. Peter is warned by Jesus that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat, and Jesus has given Satan permission, and Peter says, no worries, I'm strong enough. Pride can make a real fool out of a man, can it? And that's the danger that, that we all face. We think that we're stronger than we, than we really, we really are. We might not say it with our, with, out loud, but we, we, we say it with our lives, with our, with our prayerlessness, with, uh, with the fact that we don't pay attention when the Word of God is preached, when we don't take the Bible seriously. When Jesus says, be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall, your actions show that you really don't think it's going to happen. It, it could, it's possible, I know, but I don't act like it's imminent. I don't act like it's a, it's a fundamental danger that I need to battle against today, this, 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 this very moment, even this morning as you're, as you're listening. Well, we're in our passage, we're going to see who's right, Jesus or Peter. And you already know the answer. You might think of Mark fourteen sixty six through 72 like, like one of those video clips of a politician saying one thing and then they, they put that video screen up and then they, they show them the, the other screen where they do the exact opposite. This is not an altered video, though. Facebook doesn't need to take this one down. Peter himself is the source of this story. That's how we know the details of this story. It's the one in all four Gospels, and it agrees closer to any other story in any of the Gospels. And Mark's source is Peter. You would remember a moment like this if it happened to you, wouldn't you? What would you write about? What would you say? If you knew that this event happened to you and it was going to be written down and passed down through the ages to millions of Christians to read, what would you write about? Would you be, would you be tempted to, to, to cut some of the rough edges off and make yourself look a little better than, than you really were? Well, Peter pulls no punches. Pulls no punches with his failure because he wants us to learn. And by the way, that, that's one of the ways that you can tell true repentance from temporary regret. People who are truly repentant don't make excuses for their sin. They don't blame shift. They confess it in all of its hideous blackness. And while this is one more example of the omniscience of Christ, the purpose of this passage is to warn us through the example of Peter about the insidious nature of self-confidence. 
Self-confidence, overconfidence, confidence in anything other than you have nothing to be confident about is deadly. (laughs) That's the lesson that's before us today. This lesson is a call to look beneath the surface at what causes the fall and beware of that source. Peter didn't understand the source of his boldness was his self-confidence. He thought he was being bold in the Lord. And until he was confronted through the failure of his own theology, nothing else would help him to surrender to that reality. And so God allows Peter to look in the mirror of failure and learn. The Lord tore down his self-confidence and put back in its place an awareness of his sin nature, full dependence on Christ, and humble submission to God's sovereign hand. And the good news for us today is for those that God takes through this process, He will not forsake you. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Now, the outline of the story is pretty straightforward. In verse 66, you have just the introduction to the scene. Then you have Peter's threefold denial in verses 66, the last half, verse 77. And then it ends with this recognition that he's just fulfilled Jesus' prediction. Jesus looks at him, the rooster crows, Jesus looks at him, and Peter weeps. And so I would outline it this way. There is the collapse of confidence or self-confidence. There is a denial of awareness. There's a denial of association. And then finally, tragically, there is a denouncement of allegiance. Just a few verses. And though there's a few verses, you should not think this happens all at once. Peter's denial happens over a two-hour period of time, from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. At the same time, Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, before the, the 71 in the raised platform, Jesus standing in the midst. Peter is out in the courtyard. The events happen simultaneously. And while Jesus is being tried inside, Peter is being tried outside. And at the precise time when Jesus claims that He is the Messiah, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory, at the same time, Jesus is condemned by the Sanhedrin while the leaders are heaping scorn on Him. That's the very moment that you get to this denouncement of allegiance and Peter curses Christ and swears he doesn't know Him. The Lord is being mocked and spit upon while Peter is cursing him as well. This is a dark moment in Peter's life and in the Gospels. And when the Lord looks at Peter being led across the courtyard, his face is swollen from being struck and spittle drips from his beard from the disrespect of the leaders. And Peter's eyes fill with shame and the Lord's eyes are full of compassion for Peter. What a Savior we have. Let's look at the the first one and see what we can learn. There is the denial of awareness. Look, if you would, at verse 66. It says, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Mark uses a a technique here that emphasizes the event. If you've been walking with us, you know that this is the continuation of a 
of a story. Mark picks the scene back up here from verse 54, and he's now showing us what's been happening while Jesus is in the upper uh, upper courtyard, or the upper room, if you will, where the Sanhedrin is meeting. Houses were, were, were built, uh, uh, flat roofed, and, and, and families typically lived together, and in the center there was a courtyard, and Jesus is, is not on the lower level, he's, he's on an upper level, and, and Peter is down below in the courtyard, and we've just seen what's happening with Jesus, and now we get a flashback to what's been going on with Peter while Jesus is inside. It's like an outtake. Verse 66, you can, you can translate it like, Meanwhile, back in the courtyard. And Peter has followed the Lord at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. It's interesting. The word that's used for Peter following at a distance is the same word from Matthew 4.20, where the Bible says they left their nets and followed him. And Mark takes us right into the courtyard. But the Gospel of John gives us some very interesting details. I'm not sure if you've compared all four of the Gospels before, but John says there's actually two disciples that, that, are, that are there. Two disciples at the trial. John 18.15 says another disciple followed as well. And what's even more interesting is it says that this disciple was known by the high priest. Did you know that? John 18, 15, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard. And that disciple is the one that gets Peter in. Look at John 18, 16. But Peter stood at the door. So Peter follows at a distance, a distance from the soldiers and Jesus. They take Jesus in. They take him directly into the room where the, where the trial will take place. And in this courtyard, there's a doorway, and Peter hangs back at the door. This other disciple goes in, and that disciple is the one that comes back and gets Peter entrance into the courtyard. Peter stood at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl and brought Peter in. Now, the immediate question that I have, that you probably have, is who is this disciple? Because the Bible doesn't give a name for the disciple. And I think that there are two legitimate options. One, this is a disciple of Jesus that lived in Jerusalem, and he has some relation to the Sanhedrin, or possibly Caiaphas, because he's known. And the word for known is, he's, he's, he's known intimately. He's, he's not just an acquaintance. He's known well by the high priest. So is that... Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, who knows? But I think the other option that's better is it's John himself. I think that's who it is. John is the only gospel that mentions this other disciple. Remember, Peter's the source for this whole story, but John, when he writes his gospel, he talks about this other disciple, and he doesn't give him a name, which is what John does. John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's not a boast. That's a marvel. (laughs) He's marveling over the fact that the Lord loved him. The focus is on the Lord's love, not not on the, the object of his love. And John also reveals a detail that none of the other writers do. He talks about the, the fire is a charcoal fire because of the chill that's 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 in the night. But what's more important is what the servant girl says to Peter when she tries to call him out. Look at verse 67. It says, And seeing Peter warming himself, 
she said to him, watch this, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. John 18, 17, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Indicating that there's another disciple that's there. The second slave girl that recognizes Peter was Malchus's relative, and she's aware of who was with Peter at the arrest, and she says, did I not see you in the garden with him? So whoever this is was with Jesus in the garden and Peter and was associated with him. So what's the point? Oh, just some Bible trivia. No, there's a point. If another disciple is there who was known to the high priest, he's not incognito, and he's the one that gets Peter in the courtyard, who's the brave one? Peter or this disciple? Peter makes this great boast to Jesus in front of the rest of the disciples, likely in front of this one. He says in the other room, though all will forsake you, I will not, even if it costs me my life. And in the lower courtyard, Peter says, I never knew the man, I swear. Peter doesn't even come into the courtyard, but this disciple immediately goes into the courtyard, and he's known to the individuals. And this disciple doesn't even use his name. And this disciple doesn't deny Christ. You see, strength comes from the Lord, not your, your bold boasts. Here's a principle for you. The more wind that's in your lungs crowing, the less of the Spirit that's filling your heart. The message of the Bible is the exact opposite of the world. The world says you can do it, you are powerful, you are important because you are you. Your problem is you need to realize your full potential through self-esteem, self-confidence, self-worth, self-something, self-self-self, whatever it is. And the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says you can do nothing. You have no power. The only glory in you is the fact that you've been created by God and bear His image. And you should marvel that He's even aware of you. You have no potential in yourself, and you should loathe yourself, your sin, not esteem yourself. Now, that's a pretty contrary message to what you, you hear when you turn on the TV, isn't it? And when you feel strong, the Bible says, is when you're at your weakest moment, and that's exactly when Satan will strike. Look at verse 67 again. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Now, John tells us the other disciple went into the outer room, which is the open courtyard. Peter stays outside until he comes and lets Peter in. And when he does, this servant girl who opens the door recognizes Peter. Luke says it in a very graphic way. She earnestly looked at him. She fixed her gaze on him. And that's when the trap is sprung. The question comes as a complete surprise to Peter. Have you ever been sucker punched? I can remember being sucker punched in high school. Have you ever been waylaid? You're walking along, minding your own business, thinking everything is going okay, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, wham! You ever been at the beach? walking out into the middle of the waves and you, you, you turn your back to the waves and you look back at the family and you're waving 
and then all of a sudden the wave comes. That's what happens to Peter right here. Peter's temptation happens when he least expected it, and it came from the person that he least at least expected. It was a slave girl that asked the question, not an interrogation before religious leaders. And when Peter made his boast, he thought he would be beside Jesus, likely. He felt confident standing with the Lord, but he's not in the same room. He's out in the courtyard around a fire with a bunch of underlings, and they're the ones that Satan uses to spring the trap. And you need to understand that's exactly how Satan works. He comes at you when you least expect it in the ways that you least expect The servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the light, looking closely, says, this man also was with him. She says to Peter directly, you were with the Nazarene. Her argument was he was with him. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. Let's look at what Peter says. You were with, in verse 67, the Nazarene. But verse 68 says... But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. Notice what it says. I neither understand. I don't know. And I don't understand. It's, uh, it's, it's pleading ignorance. It's, I don't understand what you're saying. No oblying lace. He's pleading ignorance. He's feigning a lack of awareness. He's hiding in the shadows when he, when he should stand in in the light. This is what we do when no one knows that we're a Christian in the room. And people start talking about an anti-biblical position. or They start boasting about whatever it might be. And then we say nothing. And then they turn to us and they say, what do you think? And you say, I don't know. We don't deny the Bible outright, but we act like we don't know what they're talking about because it will cost us. I will never forget a test like this that came whenever I worked for Anthem. And I went into one of our board members' offices who was a physician, and he gave me time to sign some papers before um, before he went back to see some patients, and we were sitting in there alone and I'm not there as, uh, as, as anything. I was there as, a, as an employee, um, not as a preacher or a Christian or anything else. I'm, I'm just there to get some papers signed. And he started asking me some questions, and I took it as an opportunity to, um, to listen. And, and I really don't even remember how the topic uh, you know, got brought up, but, but he was talking about evolution and, and, and creation. And then all of a sudden, he just turns to me and looks at me, and he says, you go to church, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, you don't believe in that Adam and Eve, literal people in a Garden of Eden nonsense, do you? I mean, I'm not expecting the question. I have no idea that it's coming And I've got a man who is an authority who asks me, you're not really that stupid, are you, right? I mean, you've had that. And thankfully, I said, yeah, actually, I do. And that's about as much as I could get out. You know, I was a believer about two years. And he kind of rolled his eyes and looked funny and went on to sign the paperwork and and looked on. 
you duck the question because you're unwilling to make others aware of your position of the truth. Peter has a denial of awareness. He didn't anticipate the slave girl outing him or asking the question, and he responds by, by moving. Look at what it says here in verse 68. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about, and he went out to the porch. He goes back to the door. So he's in the middle of the courtyard, and now he goes to the portico. He goes back to the door. He doesn't go out the door, but he gets away from the, from the, from the woman. But he can't get away from, from himself. And that's where you see this second denial of association. Look at verse 69. The servant girl saw him. Matthew tells us this is another servant girl. There are multiple people in the courtyard. And began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. This goes from bad to worse. Now think about this. The first time Peter is surprised because he's unprepared. He shouldn't have been unprepared. Jesus tried to prepare him, didn't he? Just like he tries to prepare us. But this denial is calculated. The rooster crows. And because he's unwilling to bear the cost of association, Peter denies the Lord again. But I want you to notice what this servant girl says. The servant girl saw him and began to say once more to the bystanders. She's not just talking to Peter only. Now she's talking to the whole group. This is one of them. Plural. This man is one of them. One of the followers. Now Peter's under even more pressure. She mentions he's a follower, and she mentions it to the whole group, and that's the key word, them. You are one of them. Matthew says he denies that before all, meaning there's more than one asking. It's like, you know, when you want to fall to the back and you don't want anybody to, to notice you. You get up on Saturday morning, you don't fix your hair, put your makeup on, you, you look really bad, you put it in a ponytail, and you just have to run down to the store to get milk or eggs, and you walk in and half the church is there. You know what I'm talking about? Peter is wanting to fall to the back, and this woman, this other slave girl, recognizes him and shouts it to everybody. Hey, this guy is one of them. Everybody, look. And Peter has already said that he's unaware of what the slave girl's talking about. But now he's noted as being with Jesus. So the logical question is, what gives? How can you be unaware of who Jesus is? You don't even know what I'm talking about, and yet you're seen with Him. This is a denial of association. If you were with Him, then you must be one of His followers or something else. The question is, what gives? Which is it? I think this is the same question the unbelieving world asks about Christians who say they're followers of Christ and yet don't live like it. You say, I, I, I don't take a position on homosexuality. I just, you know, I, I'm not going to do that. But I'm a follower of Christ. I, I can't say whether that person is going to heaven or hell because who am I to judge? And yet you're a follower of Christ and you say you believe the Bible. You, you see the problem of association there? Now, obviously, you don't have to be a jerk whenever you, whenever you share the truth. It's not your authority, it's God's authority. But you can't disassociate yourself from what the Bible says if you're a believer. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Christians who say they believe in Jesus but deny what the Bible says, there's a denial of association. They go together. Peter has denied his awareness, but now he's been seen with them, and this doesn't even add up for unbelievers. It doesn't add up for unbelievers to say that you're a follower of Christ, and yet don't follow the Scriptures. There's no middle ground. It, it's illogical. You either are or you're not. You, you either believe all of the Bible or none of the Bible. You, you can't pick and choose. It's inconsistent. It's a, it's a contradiction of association, and that will lead to, to eventual defection. Where's Peter at? This is the trial of the leader of them, right? Do you remember what Peter said to, to, to Jesus? Look at Luke 23. There's a little nugget here. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But Peter will do neither. Peter fears here that they'll arrest him as one of them and put him in prison. And so he'll not associate himself with them even though Jesus has already protected the disciples from imprisonment. Do you remember um, whenever we were, we were going through the arrest in the garden and the whole band comes up the Kidron Valley to arrest Jesus and Jesus asks the question, I think it's in John, he asks the question, whom do you seek? You know why he does that? You remember what they say? Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we seek. And you remember what Jesus says, I am, and they all fall dead, and they get back up, like dead men, not dead, dead. They fall down, they get back up. He asks them again, whom do you seek? He asks the second time, and as we said, probably with a, a little bit more fear and trepidation, they, they say Jesus, you know what's going on there? He's making them identify who the arrest warrant is for. And he's doing that to protect the rest of the disciples. You're only here with authority to arrest Jesus the Nazarene. That's the only authority that you have from the Jewish leaders and from Rome. The rest of these men you cannot arrest. He makes them say that. And so Peter, even, even here, has nothing to fear of his arrest because not Peter's boldness that, that keeps him from, from prison, but Jesus' faithfulness. And yet... Peter is exposed as one who'll do neither. He's surprised and then he's, he goes deeper and he gets calculated and sadly he, he goes even further in this denouncement of, of allegiance. If you would at verse 70. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, now, there's a slave girl that opens the door. There's another unidentified slave girl. She says to everybody, and now everybody is in on it, not just one individual or one individual saying to others. Now all of the people were saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. So notice it says, after a little while. 
So a little more time passes. Time for Peter to think. Time for Peter to pray. Time for Peter to say, Lord, I have messed up royally. Get me out of this situation. And yet evidently he doesn't do that. And now the entire group says, yes, you are one of them because you're a Galilean. Now, now I can relate to Peter's denial, but I can also relate to Peter right here because the Bible says the reason that they knew he was a Galilean was his accent revealed it. Just like if you're from New York or from Alabama, you have a distinct accent. And Peter was born and raised in Bethsaida, Capernaum around Galilee, and they talk different there, just like they're different dialects here. And they know, listening to Peter's denial, think about this, his denial, the words of his denial profusely rejecting. That's what the word here, the second denial, it, it's, it's the imperfect. He denies over and over. He repeats, I am not with them. I deny it. In his own denial, they pick up his accent and say, yes, surely you are. Surely you're from West Virginia. That's what they're saying to him. And so Peter's got to figure out some way to pull this thing out of the fire. And so he goes to the ultimate <clears throat> trump card. Verse 71. But he began to curse and swear. Now, I don't know what you think about whenever you hear those words, curse and swear. I think about what I got my mouth washed out with soap for whenever I was a kid. Um... Yes, my mother did that, and no, it didn't hurt me. I probably needed it even more. But that's not what he's talking about here. These are two distinct actions. Peter invokes a curse, and that curse has to have an object. And I believe this is on Jesus. The word that is here in the Greek is to anathematize. He anathematizes Jesus to prove that he is not a follower. It's like saying, damn this man's name. And then he swears that he's not one of his followers. He, 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 he takes an oath. May God strike me dead if I am lying. It, it's an attempt to make his word stronger. If, if you ever watch the the reality show cops. It's like the guy who gets arrested and they find the crack cocaine in his pocket and he pulls it out and he says, I swear, that's not mine, that's not mine. Well, what was it doing in your pants? I swear on my mother's life. I, I swear on a stack of Bibles. It's, that's what he's doing. He's, he's trying to, to add weight to his weightless words. Surely no one would believe I'm a follower if I curse the very one that I'm saying that, that I'm following. Surely if, if I would pull the, the wrath of God down on my head in a curse, they'll, they'll believe me. I mean, this is a, this is serious, serious stuff. Peter goes from denying he was with Jesus to denying being his follower to denouncing Jesus altogether. You should not think that this fall wasn't really that that bad. This is horrific. 
It's a direct contradiction of his calling. Peter, the one who is called to be God's herald, to be the mouthpiece of Christ and to speak on his behalf and to tell others who he is, this man takes that same mouth and denies even knowing the Lord. It goes from a single lie to a single person after being surprised to a denial before an entire group, and now it is moved to an all-out denunciation of Christ. And with those words... With his swear and the curse, Peter refutes the great confession that he made at Caesarea Philippi. And that's the connection that you're supposed to make. Do you remember who was the one who stood up at Caesarea? When Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now he says, I denounce this man and swear by God himself that I am not lying. You say, how can a man fall that far? Can a believer do this? Yeah, a believer can do this. And if you're asking the question, you may be in danger yourself because you don't realize the power of your flesh and how strong your sin nature really is. You may think that that in order to fix your predicament, you make some outward changes or you make some dedication or you make some profession and somehow that's going to change the disposition that you were born with and it is not. You need a radical conversion. You need a new heart. You need to be born from above. Only God can do that. And the only way that you realize that you need that and the step that God has to take to bring you there is to crush you utterly so you can see that you have no hope or power or ability in yourself. You can only call out to Christ, have mercy on me. And then as John Wesley wrote, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. In my dungeon filled with light. And my chains fell off. You remember what Peter said at Caesarea Philippi? Do you remember also where Jesus said that confession came from? Peter. Praise the Lord. You are so smart. You're smarter than the rest of the disciples. You figured out who I am and nobody else could. Is that what God says? Peter. You're right, I am. But flesh and blood didn't reveal that unto you. My Father in heaven. And do you know where Peter's bold boast came from? When he said, I'll never deny you? came from Peter's own strength, his own will. And there's the danger. And with that, the rooster crows. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Look at verse 72. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, A rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. It's rapid fire. Immediately the rooster crows. Peter remembers. Peter breaks down. He weeps. He goes off alone. He wept bitterly. What was he weeping about? Well, 
no doubt the shame of denying Christ, but it says here he remembers Jesus' words. And in that moment, Peter realized the weakness of his flesh. He thought he was strong enough to resist. He really thought he had enough strength in himself to never do this. And Peter, in this moment, discovers the truth about his own nature, and there's the turning point. When you discover the truth about your own nature, then and only then can you reach out and take what Christ offers. But until that point, you still think that you can add something to it. And that's the lesson that Peter gets to pass on to the brethren. You remember the words of Jesus when Jesus predicted the fall of Peter? He says, Peter, you're going to be different than Judas. Your faith will not fail. I've prayed for you. And when you are restored, when you repent, strengthen the brethren. What will Peter strengthen the brethren? What will Peter teach us? The lesson that Peter will pass on is you're not as strong as you think you are. You have absolutely no power whatsoever in your own strength. It's all in Christ. But if you're Christ, you may fall, but you'll not be utterly forsaken. He can't forsake His own. And He'll never forsake you. It's a wonderful lesson, isn't it? One of the questions I asked whenever I came to this When it talks about Jesus looking at Peter, I wonder what his face looked like. They kind of described, you know, he's already been beaten, smote, punched, spit on. But you know, you can really see what someone's thinking by looking in their eyes. With the eyes of Christ. What do those look like? Were they, were they scorned? Was it Peter, Peter? Disappointment? I don't think it was any of those things. I think it was utter compassion. How do I know that? I think the answer is found in John 21. Because Peter is found in the upper room. Peter is there at the empty tomb. Peter goes back to Galilee. And he's fishing. And you remember... They don't catch any fish and someone calls from the bank. The disciple in the boat says, it's the Lord. And you know what Peter does? He's the first one that dives in the water and he swims to, to the Lord. You don't swim to the Lord when you've been shamed. You, the Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's there that Jesus test Peter. You remember, he restores him three times. But do you remember the question that he asked him? Peter, do you love me more than these? I will never deny those. All these will deny I will never deny you. Peter, did you get the lesson? You know what Peter says? Lord, you know everything. You know whether I will or whether I won't. You remember what Jesus says? Don't make a name for yourself, Peter. Die for my sheep. Live for my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. It's not about you, Peter. It's not about your bold boasts. It's about you humbly 
giving your life, spending and being spent for my people and my name and my gospel. And three denials and three restorations. And you know who's standing at the day of Pentecost? Not in the boldness of his flesh and self-confidence, but in the boldness of the Holy Spirit. It's Peter. And he says, men and brethren, and he preaches. The one who testified that Jesus was Christ at Pentecost is the one that denied him here in the courtyard. And if he'd remained in his self-confidence and self-righteousness, he would fall at that moment. And so Jesus lets him fall now so he could stand in humbled boldness of God's strength and preach Jesus to thousands and thousands were, were saved. I don't care who knows my name or who remembers anything about me. But I do care if they know about my Savior. And the only way to live that way, fear of God and not fear of man, is sometimes to come to an end of your own theology and be dashed on the rocks so you look to Christ alone. Let you bow your heads.